Before we turn to our passage, I I would like to remind you that on the Sundays when we have communion, which uh, we've been trying this year to have it on the first Sunday of the month, uh, we take up an exit offering. So uh, there'll be ushers uh, or deacons at the exits as you leave, and that goes into a deacon's fund, which typically is, which almost always is used just for members of our church that have special needs. Uh, this time, the diaconate, I think, wisely decided this exit offering today is all going for the relief efforts in Albany, Georgia, as a result of the tornadoes from two weeks ago. Uh, that'll be administered through our denominational mission in North America uh, committee or Presbyterian committee. Uh, so I hope I'll remind you at the, at the end of the service that they'll be taking that offering, but that's where it will go today. Now, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, verses 8 to 21. Um, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 4, I'll, I'll remind you, I was, I was doing a series of sermons from 1 Corinthians leading up to the Advent season of Christmas, so we're just now getting back to it. This is where we left off. But just a little bit of background about uh, Corinthians, uh, the, the letter, the first letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul had gone to the city of Corinth, which was a major metropolitan uh, area, And he had planted a church there. He had led people to Christ, a church. He had developed a leadership. The church had been started uh, after 18 months, which was a long time for him to stay in one place at that time. He moved on to the city of Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus and some time has passed, he receives uh, word uh, and also letters from the Christians back in Corinth. And the word from the person who delivers the letter is that there are divisions and strife among the church. But the letter was a series of questions they asked him about issues. Now, we've not quite gotten to that. We will, we will begin to get to that, Lord willing, uh, the week after the missions conference. Uh, but he's still dealing with this division in the church. And where we break into this chapter is where he is... Uh, instructing them and pointing out to them that they become very arrogant and spiritually prideful about their own spiritual state and about the leadership that has arisen there. So I'm going to begin reading, and if you're not very familiar with the Bible, we're going to enter into a series, I mean a, a portion of Scripture that's one of the most sarcastic but really ironic passages in the Bible. Maybe sarcasm is irony. He's going to say some things that he, uh, to to make them see their condition. So if you'd like to follow along, I'll begin reading in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 4. Hear God's word. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now he switches gears and he's going to talk to them about his relationship with them as their spiritual father. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we come with hungry souls. You tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask now for nourishment from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Stephen Ohm writes of how four years ago in the spring of 2013, a debut crime fiction novel from a writer named Robert Galbraith, went on sale. Uh, no one had ever heard of this author. This was the debut novel. And the book at the beginning, as it hit the shelves in bookstores, received some positive reviews, but it only had modest sales. Over its first three months of being in the marketplace, it sold a mere 8,500 copies. And then after the spring, as it went into the summer, the sales slumped even more, and by July 7th, the sales had come almost to a stop. I believe it sold eight copies that week. Then, just one week later, on July 14th, everything changed, and the sales began to skyrocket, and it became the number one bestseller in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Well, what had happened? What had changed the situation? Well, word had gotten out. It was revealed that the author, so-called Robert Galbraith, was in reality J.K. Rowling, the best-selling author of the Harry Potter series. Now, Rowling was very upset when this became public knowledge, and she sued the law firm that had revealed her name, and she demanded that the settlement from the suit be made to you make a sizable donation to a charity because of the law firm's mistake. Why did she not want her name used? She did not want this book evaluated for her past success in a different literary genre. She wanted people to evaluate it on its own. We all evaluate continually. We evaluate the world around us. We evaluate uh, the weather. We evaluate place. We evaluate people. We evaluate the work we're doing. We evaluate ourselves. And we use all sorts of criteria as to how we feel about something, what we think about something. I was with a group of uh, pastors a few weeks ago, and one of them mentioned an article he had just read, and it said that the, the main question that particular generations ask, such as for the World War II generation, the greatest generation we call them, the question was, is it true? For my generation, the baby boomers, our question was, does it work? For the millennials, it's 
what difference does it make? And for those younger than them, whether you want to call them Gen X or one of the other terms, their question is, is it visually appealing? Because all day they're going like that. Now, whether that's true or not, or whether that's just an overgeneralization, we all evaluate. And the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians that I mentioned to you back in the city of Corinth to help them learn how properly to evaluate their church, others, and and themselves. And he's doing this uh, not just to pick a subject out of the air. He's doing it because their evaluation was wrong. They were doing self-evaluation and arriving at a conclusion that he knew was not correct. They were evaluating themselves way up here, that, that, that we should be proud of where we are spiritually. We should be proud of our leadership. And he's saying, no, in reality, you're down here. And so they had become arrogant. They had become puffed up. And the last time we were together looking at this passage back in December, we're looking at this chapter, he, in verse 7, had given them three questions. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, everything we have, we owe to God. And the third question was, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And now he begins to rebuke them with words of irony. And he says, you regard yourselves as full, as rich, as kings. You think of yourselves as having arrived spiritually. You think of yourselves as having reached perfection or having reached the consummation of Christ's kingdom, which he will bring. And then in the latter part of verse 8, Paul says, I I wish the kingdom had reached its consummation. I wish Christ has already come and set up his kingdom on earth in that regard. If it had, if that had happened, I would be reigning with you. Do you ever feel uh, content or smug spiritually? Verse 8 tells us it's very possible to have serious problems and yet think we are okay individually or as a church. I mean, the Corinthians felt good about themselves. We see this in Revelation, like the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. When Jesus says to them, you say you are rich, you say you have everything, you say you are very blessed, but, Jesus said, because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Their personal assessment of themselves was very incorrect, and we can do the same. In fact, we all do it. We probably do it regularly. And you and I become so satisfied with the wrong things. I think about this. When it comes to the area of contentment with what you have or your station in life, and and not to confuse this with ambition, you're probably always thinking or regularly thinking, uh, if I just had this, or my next goal is to do that, or I want to achieve this, and there's never a contentment from the standpoint of moving forward. Now, I, uh, through the years, when I've done counseling with couples that are planning to get married or have recently gotten married, one of the tools I use, and a number of you have taken this, was written by Norman Wright, Dr. Norman Wright, who is kind of the grandfather of Christian counseling. And it's a 12-page survey called a family history analysis. And basically, it just asks the the person and then the couple uh, to 
talk about the relationship of their parents, of their grandparents, how were problems solved, who made the major decisions, how was money handled, how was discipline administered, and, and so forth. Now, what's caught my attention in recent years, though, is the last page on the back. And it says, what are your goals? What would you basically describe your years in your 30s? Then describe what you want your life to be like in your 40s. Then describe what you want your life to be like in your 50s and so forth. And, and typically, the answers are pretty generic. What we, well, okay, 30s, uh, okay, if I'm married, I assume we have a child or, or two, and uh, I'd like to see this happening. Or uh, sometimes the woman, woman will say, well, I, I plan to work up until we have a child, and then maybe part-time or not work at all. Or the guy said, well, I want to go to graduate school. But I was with a couple years ago, and unlike almost everyone else I'd given that to, when we got to that page, the guy, the groom-to-be, told me exactly, when I'm in my 30s, this is exactly where I'm going to be. I'll be working for this company, I'll be making this amount of money, and then when we get to our 40s, he gave me the address of the place he wanted to be living in a beach community. And I was impressed. I mean, he said, oh, this is it, right there. That's where I'm, that's where I'm going to end up. That's what I want to do. I want to be right. In fact, she was impressed. <laughs> she just, she, she was as quiet as I was. I'd never talked to someone that knew so specifically, at least at that time, how they, how they had everything planned out. Now, why is it, though, for most of us, if we were to say, if we were to take a survey and it say, where do you want to be spiritually? Where do you want to be in your walk with Christ in your 30s or in your 40s or, or five years from now or 10 years from now? We might respond with, I never thought about it. Uh, well, I, I want to know Christ better. I want to know his word more. I want to pray more. I want In these other areas, uh, what we have or accomplishments we probably can get very specific. But in our spiritual maturity, often it's just a fog. Well, I'll just let it happen as it comes. And we misevaluate. We become very content with where we are. And last week we heard a sermon from the first of the Beatitudes, but it, it's rare in our own lives, and maybe what we see where Christ said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so Paul is saying, you think you've arrived to them, but you haven't. And he's pointing it out with irony. And he's contrasting them with himself and Apollos, Apollos and others who had basically were their spiritual fathers. So spiritual pride is dangerous. What is spiritual pride? Uh, we know the world sometimes calls us prideful or arrogant because we say, well, I think there are biblical absolutes about that. You know, the Ten Commandments, or Jesus is the only way to God, and they'll say, well, that's just prideful and, and arrogant. That's not what I'm describing here. I'm talking about attitude where, as a believer, you think you have arrived. And here are some of the signs of it. You're hard on everybody else's sin, but blind to your own. You condemn others, perhaps, for doing the very same thing that you practice. Uh, always a taker among the Christian community. What have you done for me lately? Rather than how can I contribute? And spiritual pride will keep us from serving others. 
Because pride, in its essence, is a preoccupation with self. It's just being preoccupied with self, thinking about myself all the time. Well, what's the example of the apostles? In verses 9 through 13, Paul says, in verse 9, that we are a spectacle to the world. Unlike you, still the irony there, brothers and sisters, we, those who led you to Christ, those who established you in the faith, uh, rather than thinking we've arrived, we're a spectacle. Now, that's a, that's a key phrase. As, a, as I did a little research on that, in the Roman world, they would have understood what he was talking about. The picture here is of a parade, a parade that would happen when a Roman general would come back after winning a battle. There would be a procession that would go into the city of Rome, and the order of the procession was very important. First in the procession would be the, the general in his chariot drawn by the finest horses. And as the people lined either side of the street, they would cheer for the general, and then after the general would come all of his main officers by rank and they would be met with great shouts and applause and following the officers would be a display of the spoils of war the gold and silver and other valuables that were now being brought back then would come the centurions the soldiers that had fought and they would be cheered on but behind them at the very end of the parade in chains would be the prisoners of defeat in humiliation being brought back many to die in the Colosseum or to serve as slaves for the rest of their lives. Paul says, oh, you are up here in the front. You see yourselves as riding in the first chariot. We, we are those condemned to die, being made a spectacle. What does he mean by that? He means, he goes on in verse 10 to say, we are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise, but we are fools. You are strong, but we are weak, he says. What does it mean to be a fool for Christ's sake? I read an example years ago about what happened to Dwight L. Moody. That's becoming a name that fewer and fewer people know. But Dwight L. Moody was the Billy Graham of a hundred years before Billy Graham. And he preached primarily here in America at first, and he received a request, a petition basically signed by ministers and laymen in England, essentially begging him to come there and to preach and to conduct these large evangelistic meetings. That's what he was known for. And he decided to go, but he really did not want to go to the universities because he did not have a formal education. His speech would reveal very quickly that he had had no university education at all. And he was a rather uncouth individual by all accounts. So he did not feel equipped to go to the, to the universities and to speak. But when he got to England, he found out that he was to preach at Cambridge. And so in 1884... He goes to Cambridge, as he wrote, quote, in fear and trembling, and he was to preach for five nights, Monday through Friday, each night, to the students. And with him was his song leader, uh, a great singer in America named Ira Sankey. And so as they went that night, the students showed up in their academic gowns, their robes, and as he began to preach, they began to mock him and to stomp, and those that had canes with them 
beat them in the floor. And they were making sure that, that he realized no one was paying attention. They took the chairs that they were sitting on and stacked them up into a pyramid in the middle of the auditorium. And when Ira Psyche tried to sing, they shouted out. And they later just said it was chaos and it was humiliating. And Moody and Psyche went back to their room for the night and Moody apparently said the awful thing is we are here all week. That was Monday night. Tuesday night was just as bad. Wednesday night, they said, was even worse. But on Thursday, God's spirit moved. And men, because it was men that were in the, the students, they began to respond to the gospel. And hundreds between that Thursday night and Friday night were, were converted. They came to faith in Christ, and among those hundreds was a group of seven students that included C.T. Studd and others that became known as the Cambridge Seven. This was a group of seven men who had been converted and they began to tour around the universities in England and to tell about Christ and to urge students upon graduation to give their lives to the cause of foreign missions. They went to Scotland, they came to the United States, they spoke, and as a result, Historians look back at what happened as a beginning, as that was the beginning of the student volunteer movement. The student volunteer movement was kind of the predecessor to the YMCA, which was a Christian mission organization to start out with. But the student volunteer movement and that particular meeting and those particular seven students are, are seen as being responsible for 20,000 missionaries going to the foreign field. Now, why did that happen? Well, it was God's spirit, obviously, but from a human standpoint, it was because Dwight, because Dwight L. Moody and Ira Sankey were, be, were willing to be fools for Christ's sake. Some of you are in that position right now. Some of you know in a, a lesser degree what I'm talking about. This is not foreign to you. You've been a fool, suffered as a fool for Christ's sake when you refused to cheat. In, in your job or, or in school or when you refuse to lie on the job when perhaps your superior expected you to do so, to get the sale or to make the deal. Or you, you refuse to disobey the Lord when it would have been socially acceptable and econom economically advantageous. Yeah, I've, I've told you this, but it's been a number of years. I, the prime example of this I saw was my own mother. My mother loved my father and he died and my mom was still healthy, and she was living by herself in Alabama. My sister lived in another city. I lived over here, and she decided to remarry. Well, the last years of my father's life, he was a lawyer and then a judge. Uh, he, he, would, he got a pension that was only really granted shortly before he died, or within a couple of years before he died. And that pension by the state of Alabama for him serving as a judge was in the neighborhood of $4,000. So after he died, he was so, I remember he was elated when that finally went through because he said, that will take care of your mother when I'm gone. So a few years after my father dies, my mother says, I, I, I want to remarry. And she married a, a man named Don, totally different from my father. My father was very serious, very worrisome, 
uh, highly educated. He probably should have taught history in college and so forth. This man graduated from high school. He'd worked in a steel plant. He was a blue-collar worker. He had a great sense of humor. I preached at his funeral. I said, I think he was the most likable man I ever met in my whole life. He was a great guy. But when knowing she was getting married, she'd lose the $4,000 a month. She'd lose the income. So as she goes to City Hall to apply, you know, get the wedding application, person after person in my Bible Belt hometown were saying, why in the world are you getting married? Just live together. And my mother, very committed Christian, just said, because I'm a Christian, and that's not the right thing to do. And so they married, and her income went from 4000 a month to $1,100 a month. And she lived on that the rest of her life, and she watched every penny that she spent. You don't think that made an, an impression on her son? Obviously, it did. Uh, when it would have been very expedient and very easy just to say, well, we'll just live together because economically it's, it's going to be a, a big loss. You know what that's being when people say, yeah, you're, you're a fool. Why are you doing this? There is no need. And she's doing it because out of obedience to Christ. That's why I'm going to do it. That's being a fool for Christ's sake. And you'll be seen as a fool for Christ's sake when you follow him. If you follow him in a career decision where you can have a bigger influence for Christ in the lives of people and you know God's calling you there as opposed to perhaps something else you could do and make a whole lot more money, but it's just not where God's calling you. And you choose this, and some will say, maybe that's foolish. That's what Paul's talking about. I'm almost out of time. Let me go a little further. So Paul describes their plight as apostles in verses 11 and through 13. I won't reread it again, but he says, You're kings. You are, you've arrived. But us, you know, the apostles, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're in rags, we're treated uh, brutally, we're homeless, we're viewed as scum. We become the scum of the world. You think they're getting the point now? I mean, he, that's what he's saying. This is what following Christ this is where spiritual maturity is. It's not easy. It's not thinking you've arrived. And so in verses 14 to 21, his tone changes, as I pointed out to you. And he becomes very direct. And he says, look, I'm a father to you. I love you as my spiritual children. A spiritual father warns and guards and protects his children because he loves them just like an earthly father. And any of us in any type of spiritual leadership, whether it's official church leadership as, as elders, uh, whether it's spiritual leadership in the home or wherever, there's all sorts of spheres of spiritual leadership. But we should love the people. We should love them, even those that, that may need to be rebuked. But we do it in love. Uh, I, uh, there was a, in seminary where, where I attended, there were lots of small churches within two or two and a half hour drive of the seminary in these small towns that did not have full-time pastors. So they would contact our seminary and say, would you send us a student to preach this Sunday or next Sunday? And the, uh, a fable on campus was that there were these, this particular church, and they called, and so a student went out there that had never been, and he preached, and the, the, the sermon that day was on the doctrine of hell. Well, the next week, a different student went. And not knowing what the previous week had been about, he preached a sermon on the doctrine of hell. 
And as the story goes, the congregation contacted the seminary and said, we want that guy who came the second week to be our regular preacher. And they were questioned as to why. They both preached on the same passage. Why do you pick him? And the response back was because when he preached on hell, we got the feeling he did not want us to go there. (laughs) Well, true spiritual leadership is as a father. It's not as a dictator or a a commandant or a, a person that shows up and out of irritation. So how can you know if you're speaking the truth in love to someone else? More than once, in fact, several times through the years, I've had someone come and say, Chip, I want to tell you something. I want to tell it to you in love. And at that point, I brace myself knowing that whatever I'm getting ready to feel, I doubt if love's going to have anything to do with it. But what if, uh, how would Paul be able to say these strong things? And, and next week, oh well, two weeks from now, Lord willing, if we get to chapter 5, it's really, it's really going to get very specific over some sin in the congregation. But we can ask ourselves some questions like this uh, to know if you're speaking the truth in love. First, have I sought to make sure that I don't have a log in my own eye before I try to take the splinter out of this brother's eye? Am I irritated at the person? If you're just irritated at somebody and they just rubbed you the wrong way, you probably need to just say, I'm going to wait, I'm going to pause, and I'm going to pray. And when I'm uh, confident my attitude is right, then I will talk to them. So have you seriously prayed about this? Do you have a solution to offer for the situation? There was a young woman many years ago here um, and she was, became involved in the ministry, and, and uh, Barbara and I got to know her very well. And uh, she and her husband moved away years ago, this before she was married, and so she had gone to a uh, conference in, in the area of work, a you know, vocational type thing, and she had met this guy who lived in another state. And so he would come to Macon to visit. Well, it didn't take long for many of us to say, well, where does he stay? Because she lived alone. And said, so, well, he stays with her, so I... I I knew her pretty well. I, I called her one day, and I said, uh, you know, I, I, somebody just mentioned this to me, and um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking any questions. All I want to say is it doesn't look good. And Scripture says, flee the appearance of evil. And I, I really think you ought to rethink this, and I've got a number of names right here in front of me of guys in the church where he could stay. So if I was going to offer a word of rebuke, thought there ought to be a word of solution, because the answer could be, well, he can't afford a hotel room. Well, look, I've, I've got these. So what I'm saying is I think we can know if we're speaking the truth in love if we're thinking, how can this be solved? How can this situation be fixed? And what can I do to be part of the answer? Not just point out the problem. I'm out of time. He goes on and says he's sending Timothy to them. We come now in just a few moments to the Lord's table. And if you're a believer in Christ, you're invited. If perhaps you don't know Christ, but maybe you've been thinking about it, and you, you're fearful of being a fool for Christ's sake. Oh, what will so-and-so say? What will this friend, or what will this parent, or what will, this, what will my spouse, or the girl I'm dating, or the guy I'm dating, what will they think if I become a Christian? I'm inviting you today to become a fool for Christ's sake. 
and say, you know, there's only one audience that matters, and it's an audience of one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.